Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. After Brexit, the supposed will of the people, everyone is talking about the working class. And yet the actual voice of the working class is rarely heard, especially in literature. This month, we have a very special edition of Literary Friction based around a new collection of essays on the working class by the working class called Know Your Place. And instead of the usual format, we're going to be talking to three authors featured in the collection. First up, we're going to talk to Kit Duval. Kit is the author of debut novel My Name is Leon, a Times and International bestseller, which was shortlisted for the Costa First Book Award. Her essay in Know Your Place is titled What Happened to Working Class Writers. Thank you so much for being with us today, Kit. Hello. Hi, it's great to be here. So we wanted to start by asking you about your debut novel, My Name is Leon, which was published last year. Um, could you talk a little bit about your road to publication? Because um, we know you, you didn't start writing until a bit later in your life. And you mentioned this in the essay in Know Your Place, uh, how you kind of came to your voice. Um, so, yeah, just we'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so I started uh, writing entirely when I was uh, in my mid 40s, um, being sort of trapped at home with a young child um, and I started writing things that were like the things that I enjoyed reading so um, sort of Goodfellas um, you know films mafia films bad guy films thrillers film noir um, because that's what I that's what I watched on telly that's the sort of films that I watched there the books that I read but actually, it wasn't the sort of story that came from my heart. It was definitely a story that came from my head. So I then, after those two books um, that I first wrote were rejected, I wrote My Name is Leon really quite quickly um, because it pulled on lots of my background. Um, I'm mixed race. It was about a mixed race boy. It's set in 1981 when I was 21. It deals with the marginalised, um, disadvantaged communities of Great Britain, of which uh, I'm part of. And I found it just incredibly, I wouldn't say easy, writing isn't easy, but incredibly fulfilling to write something that came so thoroughly from my soul. Um, and it got published um it published last year, it went to auction, lots of people wanted to read it, which is still an amazing surprise for me. Um, and it's been just a fantastic, you know, cliche roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> but that thing about writing with that, the chance to feel like you're writing with real integrity versus writing what your head tells you to do. I think that's yes. an amazing experience for, for writers to really drop down into their authentic voice and have the chance to find that. And the fact that you know, what we're talking about in this show as well is about that voice being a working class voice, a voice that is in opposition to maybe the majority of what the publishing industry is kind of pumping out. That must feel, you know, very exciting in some ways. Incredibly exciting. And also, I think when we write the scary stuff, we write the stuff that almost you, it's not that you don't want people to read it, but it's coming from a very, very naked place. There's no fluff, there's no purple prose, there's no, it, this is like, you're saying to the world, this is who I am, this is, who I, this is what I stand for. So there's nowhere to hide really when you write from the soul. And, and of course, if you write from the soul and you get rejected, that can also be incredibly painful because you are, you 
feel as though it's you that's being rejected, not just your story, not just your writing, which is why for marginalised and disadvantaged writers, rejection can feel so total and so disabling. Because if you already come from a background that isn't recognised or where you feel disenfranchised, and then you write about that, and then you have the publishing industry saying, oh, no, what we'd really like is something set in Victorian Britain about, you know, Lord Fauntleroy again. <laughs> um, then that can feel really, really harsh, as though there is no worth in your story, and not just in your story, there's no worth in your existence, which is why we need to see more stories from the edges, more stories from the odd, the weird, the the queer, the what are you, the intersex, all those people who feel they don't look on the bookshelves in Waterstones, see their story, even if they don't see their story, that they don't think of authors that might come from those backgrounds. They might be writing about Victorian Britain, but they come from a background that is informing a new story, a new take on the Victorian melodrama, but because it, it's come from a very, very different place. I yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I I wonder it's this question. I wonder if you ever feel resistant at all to this idea of writing what you know, because sometimes I think it's it's as important for people from disadvantaged backgrounds to be able to be writing about whatever they want to write and sometimes I think there is some pressure from the publishing industry for them to write about their specific background for instance if they're a black person from London writing about being a black person from London absolutely the pressure is when you come from a marginalized background is that people assume you have one story to tell and that's your story the story of your life the story of your community one writer who is an Indian writer was told when he submitted his um, manuscript to some publishers or other to up the sari count because it wasn't Indian enough. You know, can we see a few more samosas in this? Can we see an arranged marriage? That's the vibe that you get, that we want you for your story of difference. Um, so if you're from a, a, a marginalised background or a disadvantaged background, you need to be writing about an issue. You need to be writing about poverty, writing about dis, dis, being disabled. Whereas if you are a white writer or a white middle class writer, certainly, you can write about what the hell you like. You can be a dog, you can be an embryo, you can be a toff, you can be a soldier, you can write science fiction. You can write the issue baseball, but you can also write every other subject. And no one says, well, actually, you're from uh, you know Swindon middle class family can you write us a Swindon middle class family book no one says that so what we need to get away from is that notion that if you are black disabled whatever that you can't write something you know you can write whatever you want you don't have to write what you know or who you are what you do have to write all of us is you have to write what you know to be true so that is the true response of your characters whatever those characters are doing if they're living in venice in the 15th century if they're living on mars in the you know the year 2095 then write about those people from the heart and those if you're from a disadvantaged background you will certainly know a lot about heartbreak you might know a lot about humor in dark circumstances you might know a lot about being rejected put those feelings into a character in a completely different time and place 
and you've got a book. Yeah, absolutely. And it's back to that sense of integrity again, isn't it? And and like backing the content of your writing with your your authentic experience. Um, sure. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you became involved with Know Your Place. I wrote uh, an article for the Scottish Herald originally. The Scottish Herald just got in touch with me and said, would you write an essay? And I wrote this essay. I didn't know why I was writing that essay or on that subject, uh, which Nathan picked up and we sort of worked on for the book. Um, I, I didn't know it would have the response that it had, to be honest. It's what I thought was, to a lot of people, not interesting, um, but it, it's something I'm passionate about so I, I bang on about it whenever I get the chance um, and it seems to have struck a chord with lots of people who have felt the same thing as uh, you know real privilege to be um, included in the anthology. Yeah I think uh, it, it, your essay is called What Happened to Working Class Writers and you have this wonderful line about reading too many old white men growing up and I think anyone who's been through the education system in the US and the UK has had that turning point where they say, wait a minute, these voices that I'm experiencing are so homogenous. Um, so I, w I wonder if you could talk about when that turning point came and what that inspired you to, to do afterwards. Um, well, when I was, I started reading when I was about 21. Um, I'd never read as a child, never ever, unless it was at school. Um, and so I started with the classics, with the black-spined penguin classics and I read literally hundreds of them and you know whatever you say about old white men they can write these were some of the most beautiful beautiful prose beautiful books beautiful stories that I've ever read you know Jane Eyre, Madame Bovary, Therese Racan, Arnold Bennett just you know fantastic books that will stay with me forever however I did I don't know where the turning point was but I did realize that so often I was reading even if even if I was reading about disadvantaged people you know in Dickens for example um it was always through the filter through the filter of someone that hadn't lived it and been it and also what in classics certainly in the 19th century classics what they called poor was not my version of poor and in the essay I speak about Jane Eyre because when I was googling working class characters in classic fiction, Jane Eyre popped up quite a few times where people had said, oh, you know, she, this was a, a book about class. So not a book about class. This was, uh, you know, a governess. OK, I'm not saying she was wealthy at all, but she spoke French. She lived in a big house, albeit as a governess. Um, she was certainly disadvantaged, but there were people quite a few rungs below Jane Eyre. There was the maid in that house. There was the person that emptied the bedpans. There was the person that lit Jane Eyre's fire. And that's the class I'm interested in. Not the one that knows how to sit and play the piano for Mr. Rochester, but the one who is sweeping out the fire before Mr. Rochester sits down. And, you know, I found that there were so few people. I mean, of course, lots of people couldn't write. They couldn't write their story if they wanted to. And I don't know if they would have found an audience in those days. I think things have changed now. We can read and we can all write if we want to, you know, if we have the opportunity to. Um, since universal education, uh, which is about 100 years old now, the working class can read and write. And we, because we can, 
we should be the authors of our own stories. Yeah, it's a really important point. And, you know, you're describing those, those, like you say, phenomenal books, but books of a certain time that, that make up the literary canon in the English language that yeah, are yes. exclusive in some ways and excluding. You know, these days, do you think that the canon is really changing or do you think there's any use in having a canon at all anymore if it's somewhere that doesn't necessarily embrace new and more relevant and important voices? I'm a little bit old school when it comes to the canon and I think there are great works of art and I think there are some books that we should, not we should, but can be embraced by a lot of people of having such universal themes and being so well written and so beautiful and so profound. Whether they're written by old white men or not, they're just great works of art and I've got no objection to the canon. I think what I do have an objection to is the canon being set in stone and the canon not moving except in very, very narrow channels, which are to do with, you know, the English middle classes. So I think canon's great. You know, we often see these lists on Facebook or wherever about the 100 books that you should read. I don't think that's a problem, really, to have 100 great books and have people contribute to it, so long as we can be imaginative and flexible enough to include um, more contemporary works, more far-reaching works, more works from different backgrounds, so the canon isn't populated by photo fits of one another. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> and and I completely agree, you know, as somebody who works in the publishing industry, that a big part of the problem is the publishing industry, which needs to both publish more working class and BAME LGBTQ authors, but also hire people from these backgrounds. Um, And I was really heartened to hear that you have set up a creative writing scholarship, which seems to me to be a really great step towards more inclusivity. So could you talk a little bit more about that and the inspiration behind it? Yeah, so I, um, when I got my debut novel uh, deal with Penguin, it was more than I expected and I really wanted to give somebody from my background the opportunity to study creative writing. Um, Originally I wanted to call it the Fat Chance Scholarship because every time I said to somebody why don't you do a creative writing scholarship they said Fat Chance because it's so expensive. Um, But anyway I was talked out of that we called it the Kids of our scholarship and it was um, just me paying um, the fees and some travel and some subsistence so that somebody could do creative writing MA at Birkbeck. Um, when I set the scholarship up I started telling everyone about it to make sure that the right people got to hear about it to apply and when people found out so many people contributed to the scholarship. Somebody donated a thousand pounds for a laptop and all the stationery. Uh, the staff in Waterstones donated um, the books, the reading list. You know, Penguin, my agent Joe Unwin, um, the Word Factory spread the word. Arvon, all of them contributed to the scholarship because people are looking for ways to change things. I mean, there's a lot of talk about change. Lots of people who are really into change and really supportive of change don't know how to do it. How do I do it in my my tiny little corner of the world or my little job in publishing? I'm not I don't feel I'm making a big difference. Um, It does make a big difference wanting change. That's the first step. But actually finding a mechanism 
to effect change is great. And, you know, I think that's why people were so enthusiastic about getting on board. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's really, really exciting. Um, just to, we're running out of time, sadly. I feel like we could talk to you for hours. Um, but just to wrap it up, we'd love it if you'd recommend a book that you've read recently that you enjoyed. Uh, listeners always love to hear what, what the writers we talk to are reading. Okay, this book, and you heard it here first, <laughs> is going to win everything. Or if it doesn't, it really should. It. I read it, um, well, it's one of those books where I was making the tea reading it, I was on the toilet reading it, I was making children's dinner reading it, I was on the, you know, I, everything got dropped for this book. It's called My Absolute Darling uh, by yes. Gabriel Tennant. And it is shocking, gut-wrenching, beautifully written. It's almost a nature thriller, if there is any such thing. Um, it's incredible. This guy who's quite young, who I hate for his talent, he's <laughs> um, wise beyond his years. He must be to write this book. Um, it's absolutely incredible and when you get the book i don't know about if, if it's in the um the actual hardback but the version i got which might have been um you know pre-release copy there's like five or six pages of this is the best book i've ever read this is the best book i've ever read. And i hate that because it makes me think oh shit you know i've got to like it i've got to like it because everyone's saying it's great it's almost like when something's over recommended and you sort of turn up to the cinema thinking well you know it's going to be fantastic and then it's only ever going to let you down this is the opposite it's the opposite of that all that stuff at the beginning of the book does not do it justice it's so good I think everybody should read it it's like the last book that had that effect on me was The Road by Cormac McCarthy oh man yeah uh-huh um it's it's that bracket of genius it's really good. Oh my god, that's so exciting! Wow. I've actually I got goosebumps listening to you talk yeah. about it. And and it definitely that it definitely has buzz around it in the industry, but I had doubted the has buzz. It? Yeah, but, oh, I, um, didn't know, I didn't know it had buzz around it, but my god, it's absolutely great. Fab. Oh, well, I'm going to read it now. Yeah, me too. I have it on sure. my shelf, and I was resisting it because I thought it was overhyped. But you you convinced me. Don't resist. Uh, Kit Duvall, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Literary Friction. Thank you so much. This is Literary Friction, and this month we're doing a special show around the essay collection Know Your Place about the working class. Next, we're back with Nathan Connolly. Nathan is the founder of Liverpool-based indie publisher Deading Books and the editor of Know Your Place. He also wrote an essay in the collection titled You're Not Working Class. So Nathan, um, to start, this book began on Twitter, which I think is really interesting. Could you tell us the story of how it came to be? Hey, uh, yeah, um, it it originally came about from Nikesh Shukla, uh, who's the editor of The Good Immigrant. Um, he kind of posted a sort of a prompt on Twitter asking, saying, well, saying that someone should publish a book of working class essays as a sort of state of the nation book uh, in a similar vein to The Good Immigrant. And we kind of, well, I jumped on that over Twitter without thinking too much about it or giving it much consideration other than I wanted to do it. 
um, mainly because of my own background as sort of working class. Um, yeah, and that's it all kind of came from that. And immediately people kind of started joining the conversation on Twitter and it was probably the most kind of anticipated book we've had just because of that that was its start kind of um everyone getting involved it, it, yeah and how did you select the different essayists like were there particular writers that you were super excited to have participating were there people that you had in mind to approach yeah we approached a few people directly um kit deval uh andrew mcmillan um but others we kind of because it was a, it's essays on the working class by the working class we did want to keep it open and allow people to kind of approach us so we kind of we posted um a submissions call out on twitter and asked people to get in touch with their kind of ideas for essays um and just let anyone anyone who thought they considered themselves working class or from a working class background and they all everyone got in touch with us that way and we just kind of selected it there um by kind of taking the essays and working out a good flow for the book from there was there any essay that really surprised you? Um, Abundance Matanda's essay that we opened the book with. Who we're featuring later on the show, featuring. yeah. <laughs> and that one blew me away as soon as, I'd, uh, as, soon as I started reading it. Um, and that's why we kind of opened the book with it as well. It kind of, um, it just starts the whole thing off with so much energy. And it's so kind of positive and kind of focused on the current current situation and the future and kind of different ways that people can enjoy artwork um, and culture and I think it was such it forms such a good start to the book because I don't think it, it doesn't begin on and some of the essays have kind of negative notes or, or criticisms but this one is just straight away opens with such a positive a positive note so that was kind of the, the biggest surprise and the way she writes as well um she just kind of throws convention out the window and just begins with all of this energy. So that yeah. was kind of the biggest surprise, I think. Yeah, it's a really great piece of work. We're really looking forward to talking to her about it more. Um, so the book was also crowdfunded, which, you know, is a, is a relatively new way of books coming to the fore in the publishing industry, isn't it? And we wanted to know what that experience was like. And, you know, do you think it's a legitimate way to kind of bypass some of the elitism of the publishing industry? Yeah, we... Um we normally kind of crowdfund the novels which we publish, which are kind of mainly debut literary fiction. Um, and we crowdfund those on our own site. And we only raise about £1,000 per book uh, for print runs. And it's kind of a slow slug because it's debut literary fiction. Um, but with Know Your Place, we thought it had a kind of broader appeal than that. So we put it on Kickstarter. And we set it up with quite a high target of about seven and a half thousand pounds which is more than we've ever raised before and it reached that within the first week that's amazing, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. um and we kind of weren't prepared for that we've never had anything sort of rocket off in that way before um and i think that's kind of the brilliance of crowdfunding i mean even with our novels we get people involved right at the start and make sure they feel like they're invested in the authors that we're producing and i think it's that's a way to kind of I think sometimes publishing can feel quite distant from people, uh, especially kind of the reading public. Um, not everyone really understands what publishers do or what their role is. Um, and, you know, books just kind of appear in a bookshop. 
Um, but I think this way people have a, they're involved in the entire process and they feel a bit of ownership over it. And I think that was especially important with a book like this, Essays on the Working Class, um, just because we wanted it to feel organic, I guess, from from a working class community and not something which we'd kind of just behind closed doors put together and sent out. Mm. And you talk in the introduction um about this being born from a frustration that everyone was talking about the working class, but their voices were so rarely heard. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, I don't want to mention any awful politicians' names. <laughs> but um, Please do. <laughs> <laughs> After particularly the EU referendum, there was a lot of kind of talk of the voice of the working class and the working class people have spoken. Um, and this kind of, this idea of sort of democracy being used as a kind of cudgel for any dissent to this horrible decision we're walking into. Um, and they were, people were quite happy to evoke working class voices to, to make any justifications they wanted. But nowhere in that were working class people being given a voice. And I think that is just disgusting, really. It, I mean, it's... It's using um, it's using working class voices to get your way, but not actually giving them any opinions of their own. And I think that's kind of partly what we have missed in this. Um, we've divided the country in two, and then one side is saying, oh, well, the working class voted for this, when we've not actually heard what the working class voted for at all. We've not heard what their motivations were. Um, and I don't think outlets which are quite interested in pushing an agenda on that they're not really interested in extending that agenda to actually discussing what might have motivated working class people for that vote yeah it's scapegoating an entire section of a society isn't it it's really it's deeply uncomfortable um and that's why you know when when i saw on twitter you, you know the first beginnings of this project I was so excited about it because it really did feel like this gaping void in the conversation like you said yeah I think it's also been used to let certain people off the hook totally. as well um they can just pass the blame on to the unwashed masses and um they can go on their merry way when yeah. they started the whole bloody thing yeah um and well, and knowing that there's maybe not such a platform for those people to take their own space and respond, which is exactly what your book is providing the opportunity yeah. for. Um, I wanted to ask you about your essay, which which closes the book, You're Not Working Class, where you talk about perceptions of the working class versus the reality, especially kind of in relation to yeah. your own experience of life. Um, I mean, ha like, how do you think we can debunk stereotypes of what the working class is? And, how, and, and what did you want to show in, in your essay, really? I think there's, I think the working class is quite difficult to define, particularly in now. Um, there's talk of two different ways of defining it, sort of economically or culture culturally, um, and neither of them give a kind of neat answer, which I think you would be happy with. And so there are kind of there are grey areas when it comes to defining defining them as a demographic and that's why we kind of wanted people to self-identify um i think also that kind of gray boundary is used to 
disenfranchised people of being able to use the label working class. And I think there's a lot of people inside and outside of the working class who like being able to take away the kind of right to that demographic away from people. Um, Particularly now we've got a lot of working class people who have gone through university um, because so many people now go through university, whereas probably only 10 years ago, but certainly 30 years ago, that would have been instant grounds for you no longer being working class if you were university educated. Whether that's still the case when so many people do go to university now is another thing that's up for a debate. And again, even once you've progressed through university, are you still culturally middle class? Um, you would still lack middle class connections and networks and um, kind of social behaviours. Um, and yet you'd be stripped of kind of that working class background. Um, and that can happen within the working class as well. Um, the kind of, there's the, um, you know, there's plenty of kind of Monty Python sketches of kind of the three Yorkshiremen and stuff and um, the working class household where they're all playwrights um, and the son wants to become a minor. Um, <laughs> yeah, of, of people kind of progressing beyond and then being stripped from within the group of their kind of any kind of claim to authenticity yeah. and I think a lot of that is kind of a purity testing um, mainly by people with an agenda um, and I kind of wanted to strip that away within in that essay because um, I think it's kind of ridiculous yeah um, <laughs> I really like the point that you made that just because I've gone to university, just because I voted um, to remain in the European Union, doesn't mean that I'm a liberal culturally. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't walk into a room uh, with people in the publishing industry and know in some sense that a lot of people there don't think I belong. Um, and I think that's a really powerful point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you too, because I thought it was really interesting you said in the introduction that you didn't want it all to be about politics. I think this book in itself is a political act. It's, you know, it's giving these writers a space that they don't necessarily have. But also that being working class isn't always about engaging with politics. It's about yeah. getting up and going to work and coming home and being with your family. So to talk a little bit about that dichotomy and, and the kind of essays that you think espouse the, the, the sort of everydayness. Yeah, um, I kind of felt that the book itself was political enough um, and I didn't want it to become a kind of outlet for any particular kind of brand of politics. I wanted it to be more general than that. Um, there are essays which go into politics, um, but I wanted it to be an opportunity to be a bit wider in brief than that. Um, so I think so. There's you know, there's essays on. Um, on accents, there's essays on kind of modes of speech, um, what's considered vulgar and what isn't. There's also essays just on literature and working class literature. Um, there's essays on food, uh, holidays. And we, I kind of, there's so little outlet for working class voices and kind of their experience that I didn't really just want to narrow it down to be a political exercise mm. um and, and more just a, a record 
of the working class experience from working class people and I think it's a shame that in our current environment that kind of makes it political instantly um but I thought there was a better case to be made by making it political in that sense by just its kind of existence rather than kind of a direct attack on any brand of politics itself yeah I think I think it, it that's what's great about it as a text is that it it the, the debunking that it does is that there is no such thing as a homogenous working class, right? It's a proliferation yeah. of voices like any other group of people. Um, yeah, so, I, well, I really enjoyed it. I really recommend it. Yeah. Carrie's making the time sign up. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm trying to do signals. But what I'm trying to say is I think we now need to ask you, um, as we do all of the authors who come on our show, yeah. if you could recommend a book. Yeah, um, it won't be one I've read recently, um, but I'm going to keep it within the theme of working class voices and go for Walter Greenwood's Love on the Dole, um, which is a great novel um, of the experiences of growing up, falling in love and trying to fight, trying to kind of find your way in life all the while, struggling against the, the system uh, around you, um, all set in, in Salford in an area I used to live in Salford. Um, it's quite close to me. And, um, I think for anyone who wants a kind of perspective on working class voices historically, uh, it's a good place to start and it's a good counterpoint to kind of more journalistic approaches from someone like Orwell. Uh, so that'd be my recommendation. Fantastic. I've never read that. No, me neither. Put it on the list. I'd love to have a look. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the right, show. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to have you. And uh, the SEA collection is called Know Your Place. This is our special literary friction based around the essay collection Know Your Place. Finally, we're speaking to Abondance Matanda. Abondance is an art and culture writer and poet, and her home city of London informs the subversive colloquial voice she uses to dissect themes and identities like girlhood, class, blackness and language. Other influences range from Miss Dynamite to Tony Cade Bambara to old school Congolese music videos. Her essay in Know Your Place is titled The First Galleries I Knew Were Black Homes. Um, abundance we're really thrilled to have you on the show um we'd love it if you'd start with a reading please cool the first galleries i knew were black homes before i ever stepped foot in a proper gallery or museum i was already accustomed to how them spaces are set up and function even though bare of these institutions never particularly had me or my experiences in mind upon their inception being a black working class woman I exist on the peripheries in the shadows of British society. It's scarily likely that you might not see me or my experiences portrayed at all, let alone wholesomely in our visual culture or art history. Me and my kind have been here making noise for a minute now though. I was born and raised in London amongst an entire network of established art spaces, similar to how the Tate is a family of four buildings dedicated to one central artistic vision. I'll focus on our capital city's working class landscapes though, as I tell you how black homes were the first galleries I knew. Every Afro-Caribbean family probably has a, a pile of photo albums stacked somewhere nondescript, but these objects are special. As our official archives, these collections of amateur point-and-shoot pictures taken for us and by us represent our individual and collective histories in Britain 
more accurately, sensitively and tangibly than anything else. I remember going through all these rectangular film photos with my mother and aunties and cousins as a youth. I still do now, seeing where they lived when they first come over, what so-and-so looked like way back when, who their friends and neighbours was, how people used to dress day to day, on the way to functions like aldeas and hall parties. Our makeshift archives are always accessible, never obscure or out of reach. Thank you. It's so great to hear you read it too. Um, I and and actually, I want to start by just asking you a little bit about your style and the language you're using here, because I love the way you mm. play with language, and I do think it's both subversive and colloquial, as um, as it says in your bio. So, can you talk a little bit about how you came to the style that you used in this essay? I think I just write how I talk and how the people around me talk, because as much as I'm writing like for myself and from like not a selfish perspective, but quite an individual way. It's like, I'm also representing people like quite consciously, just like working class people, hood people, who are often demonized for how we talk. So it's like my way of just showing it is like a powerful thing to be able to like control how you speak and just make reading and writing more accessible as well to people like me. Yeah, definitely. I think <clears throat> it's really, in this collection, it's all about representing different voices. Yeah, That's what's amazing about it, is that it's such a vocal piece of writing, which is, you know, it, yeah, I'm such a big fan of it. I don't want to gush <laughs> too much. <laughs> no, um, thank you. But can you talk a little bit about how you became involved in the collection, Know Your Place? Yeah, like, I think I just saw it on Twitter. And it's like, I can't be bothered for Twitter no more. But like, at the time, I was like, oh, right, like, I don't really write, like, essays too much. So like I was like, I actually want to. Like when I saw that, I was like, rah, like when do working class people ever actually get a chance to speak for themselves, like in a space that's dedicated to our voices? And I was just like, I was kind of scared, like, oh my God, I hope it's not just literally one kind of story being told. And so, yeah, I think that sort of compelled me to just like write. And this had been on my mind for a bit anyway. So I was like, good timing. Yeah, and you, you spoke in that introduction about how being a, a black working class woman mm. in British society means that you're very often on the periphery. And it made me think a lot about the accepted versions of what working class is yeah. um, and how actually like blackness especially isn't often associated with being working class, but that's insane. Yeah, um, and it's so interesting because I feel like black people are so aware of like our class situation it's not something that we speak about even though it's like so in our faces like i've read like i've probably got like one or two aunties that live in like houses like we all live in flats in like estates and it's like just that culture that surrounds you and like it's so interesting as well because i think i touch on it a bit later in the essay but that sort of changes we where we come from we're not necessarily like working class it's like a different system so it's interesting that like we come here and we're like forced into this sort of like section of society that we might not be comfortable with but you just have to like get on with it and then I think that's part of working class culture as well just getting on with things yeah definitely not having the space to not being granted the space by the rest of society to sit and mull over and like yeah yeah definitely like you you don't have time to sit and mull over anything really you just need to like survive that's like your one single priority yeah it's an it's an important point to be made and one that I think people forget 
you know, a lot mm -hmm. of the time, especially when the romanticized vision of a working class figure in literature is like, comes about in a particular way. Mm. Um, I wonder if you could say something about your relationship with oral history, because you, you talk about that in your essay. Mm. Um, and Carrie pulled out this great quote, oral history is ingrained in myriad African and diasporic countries. We learned to vocalize our thoughts about visual media long before we started stepping in white cube galleries, wondering why nobody laughs out loud or runs their mouths in there. Yeah, I think it's something that I just sort of like grew up with, not really knowing there was a name for it or knowing that that's like literally how my people function by talking. And like I'm quite introverted, I don't like talking that much, but like I think I'm just a listener. So it's like I'm used to hearing like my dad's telling me about growing up and like my mum talk like half remembering things and like my grandma as well. So it's like we don't have like written things like, you know, like in the world wars, there's all them diaries. That's how people know about things that like, it's not like that. So I think because of that, you just end up really valuing people while they're alive. And it's like I keep hearing like so many people like, oh, we need to talk to our elders and like capture their memories and like record them because like we know that they like holds like really precious moments of history like in their heads and like no one else like knows how to get them out of them. So I think my connection to it is that I'm almost trying to like translate it, I guess. So it's like even me like writing this, I could have just sat and spoke to like my friends about it all night. But it's like for me to capture it in like a written form is almost weird, but <laughs> it's like quite fun as well. And then I don't know, it is it allows me to keep on talking and just like I don't know, I might I haven't even shown this to my mum, but I might show it to her and she might just end up talking even more. And then just like I don't know, things just get more precious. Yeah. And um Nathan mentioned that what he really liked about this essay was that it's really positive. Um, it's like critiquing culture, but it's also looking at new ways of thinking about art. And I love what you do throughout this essay, which is to say like, you know, people like me aren't often welcome in the white cube gallery, but that doesn't mean that we don't understand mm -hmm. how to read these signs and signals. I've seen this in photo albums. I've not been allowed to touch like, uh, the really nice crockery that never comes out, you know, all of these things that um, that you you understand and mm. it's just like a, a different reading of it. And that was really hopeful to me, uh, yes. which I think is really cool. Yeah, I'm glad that comes across because I feel like I'm just so tired of all these narratives like, oh, being black is hard, being a woman's hard, art is hard, everything's hard. Like we know, like how are we going to like fix things if we just keep on moaning about them? And it's like... I don't know, I am moaning, but just like, hopefully in like a productive, constructive kind of way. And I don't know, it's almost like leading by example. Like, I do want people to actually think of like, if not solutions, just like reflect on like what things are and how you can change them, I guess. Yeah, it's really, it's a really celebratory piece of work because you're talking about financial deprivation, sure, but you're saying that like this, this cultural, narrative that black Brits don't have their own culture or don't have an artistic appreciation is complete bullshit, Literally. which of course it is, yeah. Um, but you know, this fact that people do seem to assume that like financial deprivation and cultural deprivation mm -hmm. go hand in hand. Yeah. It's crazy. I think that like, I realized that quite early, like that transition from primary school to secondary school. I went to primary school in Tottenham, just like 
I could probably count the white people on my hand that went to my whole school. Then I went to like a secondary school in Enfield and it was just like a complete culture shock. And it's like, I felt so aware of like how black my skin was and like how poor my area was, but not like in a bad way. I was like, oh, right, like I'm different to people. And like, not that it was a bad thing, but it's like people's confusion of like not knowing how to read me because I was never like dumb, but it's like, how can you like not be dumb, but you're from Tottenham? Like, <laughs> so it's like something I've internally dealt with and thought about for ages. So yeah, it's nice to actually celebrate something that has confused me so much. And like, hopefully other people can like, do the same. Yeah, um, and I wonder if you could talk about, you You seem to have a lot of different influences here. So can you talk yeah. a little bit more about some of your influences? I mean, even mm-hmm. some of the people that Octavia mentioned in that in that intro. Yeah, um, I think I'll talk about Miss Dynamite first. Yeah. Like, I was going to say, please keep talking about Miss Dynamite. <laughs> I love Miss Dynamite too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Miss Dynamite's like the queen of the world. Like, I think, I just remember like being young, yeah, and like her music videos coming on like MTV and like pretending I could dance along when I've got like five left feet. But, um, <laughs> and then sort of like forgetting about her and rediscovering her. And then, I don't know, I think I found like her album in like a charity shop or something. And I really love album booklets. So it's like just flicking through it and seeing all these pictures of her, of like her slick down hair, and like zigzag parties and tracksuits. And it's like, it was so nice, like just to see another black girl just being herself. And she like writes in a similar way to how I do. So like even like the lyrics to her songs, it's like she's texting you. So it's like, I just love that. I can just connect to things that I do every day. And just knowing that, I don't know, this has been happening, what I'm doing isn't new. And like even like before Miss Dynamite, there was poets like Grace Nichols, who was like writing in Patois and literally just trying to process becoming British after like coming to the UK from the Caribbean. And it's like, I don't know, you can see her poems on like TFL, like on the tube sometimes. And like I bought like one of her books and just like, it's so slim, but it's like, there's so much poetry in it and it's so deep. And it's like, oh rah, like I'm not the first black woman to actually try and figure out what I'm doing here, how I got here, even though I was born here. And yeah, just like, I think there's a legacy of like black women writers in Britain and it's quite hard to map them. But I don't know, hopefully by talking of my influences, I can be someone's influence as well. And then like the cycle can keep going. But um, yeah, and I really like music videos. I love of music videos. I think I didn't realise maybe till like a couple of years ago how visual I am. Like I think really visually, even though I don't express myself like that. Or tend to. But um, yeah, like when I was younger, I used to watch like, my dad would bring home like all these Congolese DVDs. And I would literally just sit on that, just like watching them. And it was often like live concerts. So like they'd have like electric guitars and like drum kits and like all these girls would dance and like they all had like matching outfits and they were all like really flamboyant. So like, yeah, it's just like I'm quite interested in fashion. Like my parents are like, I just love of like designer clothes. <laughs> 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 like, you know, like that Beyonce video, like crazy in love, like all the like greens and pinks my mum has like half of that collection in her wardrobe somewhere. Amazing. <laughs> so it's like I'm just like quite colourful as well um so yeah I think everything I do just is colourful anyway just even like how I speak or whatever like I like colour and I think that's probably just like an inherently African thing in me anyway 
But um, yeah, I guess like the women around me, like really strong influences, just like all my aunties and my cousins. And it's like, I don't know so much about the men. Like they're just like, <laughs> <laughs> they're That's just what we like there. to hear on Literary Friction. <laughs> <laughs> like they're just there. And it's like, I don't know, I feel like, I mentioned it as well, just in the essay, how matriarchal our family is. So it's like, as much as the men like to think they're all that, they're not, like, they don't run things. So it's like, just so interesting, just like observing them. And just, I don't know, I think there's something really motherly in me sometimes. I think I try to fight it, but it's there. And yeah, I guess that's an influence as well, just like caring for people and like community, even people I don't know. But... Yeah, yeah we're talk- and talking about community, I wanted to ask you about Galdem because you're part of, if for anyone who doesn't know, this really brilliant uh, creative collective. for It's for women of colour and people mm-hmm. who identify that on the spectrum of femininity, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and you guys do some really amazing things about sort of reclaiming space and representing voices and stuff. I'm not too much, like, part of the Galdem collective. I guess I'm just, like, associated. And, yeah, like, they've given me like just some really nice opportunities like there's such a strong network of black women in London and like what's interesting as well they went they never started in London I think they started at uni in like Bristol or something like that and yeah like I think obviously I really like physical like hard copy things and like books and zines so I think the first thing I wrote for them was for their first um, printed issue last year and it was like a bit of like a think piece just about um, my favourite short film called Top Girl. And it's a great film. I love it so much. And I was basically just, I don't know, questioning how it was like made by a white woman, but it felt so like it spoke to like my blackness so much. And like just sort of like, not saying that's not all right, but if it wasn't made by a white woman that was like outside our culture, maybe more people know about it and yeah and then like off that like I started like doing readings and like getting asked to talk about Top Girl so it's like it's so nice that there's a hub that's like what Garden's intended to be like sort of like a platform for I don't know people like me to just do their thing because we're so aware of how white and like elitist all these other platforms are and it's like to get to them anyway you need to be of like a good standard. And so Garden just like nurtures people's talent. So it's like really nice to be associated with them. Cool. Um, and finally, we've asked you to recommend a book that you've read recently and enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, basically it's this book called Prisoner to the Streets by a man called Robin Travis. And like it's so mad being in Dalston because like, the book opens with him like running from Phillies, like literally in this area. And it's, like, his tale of just growing up in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s. And it basically documents the start of, like, a sort of postcode beef between, like, Tottenham and Hackney. And it's so deep. It's mad. But it's, like, I basically drank the book. I, like, read it in two days. I haven't read a book that quick in so long. And, yeah, it's just so powerful. Like, he... I think I connected to it a lot because he writes like me, like literally as he talks. So it's like, I was like, this guy's speaking, like I can hear him in my head. <laughs> but um, yeah, he just talks about growing up 
as like a black man from London or like not even he talks about being a boy and like being perceived as a man and like becoming a man and not really having no guidance and he's it's honest like so honest and like the way he talks about like pain and trauma is like I literally never hear it so yeah it was so interesting as well to sort of have it's like oral history basically like these are stories that you hear but never like in full and it's like you could probably know him and like pick up on those stories but to see it like formally condensed into like a little book it's like really strong and like the cover is really nice as well it's got like him like wearing like a chain with like a cross on it and he's like got these puppet strings above him and there's like boys from like a gang in one top corner of the book and um police like on the other so he's literally like toying or being toyed about and like pulled in all these different directions and then I think the strong thing is that the book is literally like he's come out of that and he's then able to like reflect and like he's changed himself and then like the book ends with like all these different poems just by other readers just like responding to the themes of the book and it's like it's nuts that's really cool to have that included at the end to have that like yeah call and response thing yeah yeah that that's what it is like call and response and it's like even as you're reading it's like you're doing that like you're laughing you're crying you're like screaming <laughs> <laughs> like it's so nuts and i think like a book like that is so important especially after like literally around the corner from here that boy rashawn charles was killed by police and it's literally like he's grown up in the area like there's a history and like a legacy to that boy's life and story so yeah great so good reminder wow that sounds amazing uh abundance thank you so much for coming on literary friction we've really loved having you and uh i encourage everyone to go and buy know your place That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewees, Nathan Connolly, Kit Duvall, and Abundance Matanda. To the lovely Rory at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on ncs.live. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And if you happen to be around Canterbury on October 28th, swing by Sydney Cooper Gallery that evening for the latest shell-like exhibition called The Mouth is a Fossil Bog Buried and Glowing Blue, which I'm really excited to have a poem featured in. Yeah, I'm really excited for you to have a poem featured in it. And I'm sorry, I can't go. But you should all go. Yeah, everyone. I'll be there, guys. Canterbury, I've heard, is really cool. It's very beautiful. (laughs) Um, We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.